our podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Life Fantastic, the podcast where people with disabilities talk about all things disability here on Straight Independent Radio. We're sponsored by neurodiversityconsulting.org and sanctia.org. Check us out on the web to find out about all the great things we do with people with disabilities. I'm joined today by my co-hosts, Liza Citron, autistic disabled self-advocate and future special education teacher, Scott Davis, a disabled writer, speaker, and entrepreneur, and Dr. Jeremy Pierce, philosopher, and my husband and co-parent. The topic that we're discussing today is one that's extremely important to people with disabilities. And we're talking about the ways in which people with disabilities get treated like their children once someone finds out that they have a disability. Now, I, those of us with disabilities, I'm sure we've experienced this. Those of us who have disabled family members have seen it happen. And I'm sure that some of you listening who, ha who don't fit into those two categories, or even if you do, you have either intentionally or unintentionally infantilized a disabled person. So Liza, I want to start with you because you were the one who suggested we talk about this topic and give us a little bit of background on, on the infantilization and what that's like and what it does to people with disabilities. A lot of people assume that, let's just talk about developmental disability. Because someone is delayed in one way, they have to be like a child or they have to be as capable or anything of, of the above. And that's just not true. Developmental domains don't necessarily follow each other for one thing. Someone can be delayed in one thing and far advanced in another. But also there's this idea of what it takes to be an adult as an able person that really is not actually what it is and can be incredibly harmful for abled and, and disabled people alike. There's this assumption that because you're an adult, you have to be, I don't know, capable, able to do things yourself, et cetera. And that self-reliance, for lack of a better word, can be harmful to people regardless of, of ability. But more often than not, even when there are things that don't relate to anything delayed in terms of development, supposed age, infantilization still occurs. And one of the problems before we get to that with infantilization and developmental disability is that people are often talked about by what their supposed developmental age is. And that's problematic because that can lead to us assuming that if someone is performing at a certain level, the level of a certain aged child or teenager or whatever, if someone is performing at that level, that can lead us to believe that they are more like that age than they are their own age. They aren't an adult, they are whatever it is that you may want to say. And that leads to, those assumptions lead to a lot of different things in life, assumptions that because we are supposedly more childish, we are not able to do certain things. We are not able to work, we're not able to, etc. But the interesting thing is that these standards, these ideas, of what age someone actually is or what age someone is performing like are used even when there's no, it's not something that affects development. I mean, we talked about this last time, there's the infantilization of people and the assumption that they can have relationships or that they're not as capable, even when you're talking about something like a wheelchair user who it doesn't necessarily have anything going on developmentally, mentally, 
emotionally, anything of the sort, but they are still considered to be performing at a lesser age or considered to be more similar to a child than they are an adult. Jeremy, I wanna get your input as a, as a parent of people with disabilities and someone who, who dabbles a bit in the, in the philosophical arena of disability studies. Talk to me about infantilization and how you've experienced that in uh, you know observing how people treat our kiddos, and then what the you know what's the conversation that's happening about this in the the realm of disability studies, disability advocacy? Well, I think there's a lot that people are aware of more nowadays and how they do it, and they're trying not to. But most of the professionals that work with our kids have uh, made an effort to. Like, for example, inviting them to their meetings and talking to them rather than just talking about them and not even having them at the meeting and things like that. Um, but it, it certainly is a, a real phenomenon. And in some cases, I guess there's a, a somewhat reasoned analysis going on where they see some kind of diminished ability to communicate and they assume that there's a diminished level of intelligence behind it that kind of thing uh, where there's actually some level of reasoning going on in their mind it's not just an assumption but the fact that people do it when they see someone sitting in a wheelchair <laughs> uh, suggests that it's not just reasoning even bad reasoning but unconscious kind of expectations and associations. I mentioned, I think it was last week, I mentioned that uh, a friend of mine tells a story about his father-in-law who sometimes use, wears a prosthetic and walks and sometimes uses a wheelchair. And he's noticed the difference in how, in public settings, how people treat his family when they go out to eat. They speak to his father-in-law when he's walking and obviously the oldest one present. <laughs> Uh, seeing him as sort of the, the patriarch, but they speak to my friend, the son-in-law, when he's sitting in a wheelchair, they see my friend as the, the leader of the party and address him. So, but I certainly have seen people who, who realize this. I'm teenagers who work in grocery stores who I'll go in with my son to, to buy stuff and he's a regular there. They kind of know him. They know a little bit about what he's like. Cashiers will address us both and say, hey guys, how you doing? So there, there certainly are people who have made enough noise about this and trained the youngest generation to include people in um, inclusive models of education where they actually have decent levels of, <laughs> of, of instruction about how to interact with people with disabilities. That, that I think we're starting to see a change with at least some people in some ways, which is nice to see. But by and large, I, I suspect people generally, once they see some sign of behavior that's out of the ordinary and that sort of thing, they start to make assumptions about levels of understanding that they don't even have enough information about to make a judgment on. It's obvious to those of us who see it all the time and the people who are doing it don't even notice that they're doing it. So there's something unconscious going on. So there, and, and I appreciate that you recognize that and point out that it's in a, it's an unconscious reaction, and we're talking about two different categories of the infantilization of disabled people, wherein you have there's one situation where when someone is encountering a person with a disability, once they get some idea that oh this person might have a disability, then they begin to talk to the disabled person as if they're a child and have diminished cognitive ability, regardless of the type of their disability. And then the other kind of infantilization happens when a, a disabled person is out and about with an abled person as a friend, caretaker, whatever. And all the questions and all the conversation is directed towards the abled person as if the disabled person is unable to participate in the conversation, which 
it obvi- this is obviously a frustrating experience for people with disabilities. And there, I don't know, there may or may not be a generational component to it, as you point out, Jeremy, where a lot of the young people that we encounter, um, folks who are peers of our children, seem to understand that you address the person with a disability as an equal. And if you need to do something different to be able to interact with them, well, you figure that out along the way, rather than making any assumptions about them. Scott, I wanna I wanna get your perspective on this as someone who has perhaps experienced this. What what is it like for you? And what do you think can help people to better understand that people with disabilities deserve to be treated as whole human beings. Yes, yeah, thank you, uh, Sam. I, in the previous comment, you talked about the idea of the invisibility, but before I talk about that, an important part when I was doing some research on the show, and I, I sort of then realized when I was born, there was the uh, organization, the, the Society for Crippled Children in Cleveland, and that's that notion when a lot of the media in the way people are portrayed, it's like over 60% or 70% of how the, uh, no matter what, the way the fundraising happens with Autism Speaks and other organizations, this was back in a study in 2011, things may have changed, but they p- portray children as, as the primary person. But then I got to thinking in the research that these children become adults that you, you became an adult, each one of you, each yes. one of us became adults. And even though some of us may get diagnosed later on in life, I, I feel bad for those, those younger kids. Then as they're going along, there's that whole idea where then they sort of become invisible. And that was perfectly when you mentioned it. And you tie in the idea of our famous Maslow. Maslow's hierarchy is the whole person. You need yeah. to treat the whole person, the golden rule, and there's the idea of how do we create well-being and how do we make those changes. I think one excellent way we may be jumping ahead of the conversation is to have role models, is to have them in leadership. And I would love to have, I haven't really seen it except when McCain was in Congress, to have more disabled people within the Congress who you physically can see that maybe they have a wheelchair or a limp or maybe a stutter, then this way they are able to then be more representative of everyone. Because the issue is representation, is the idea of having a seat at the table. Those are just some thoughts. Very much so, representation is what matters. I do want to say. Scott, I like that you pointed out that oftentimes when people are are attempting to do advocacy, especially when it when it's around autism, they focus on children and seem to lack the understanding that the children grow up to be adults and that the way that we interact with them as they grow up needs to mirror the fact that they're growing up and they're becoming adults. Regardless of our assumptions about their, their abilities, there needs to be that, that basic amount of, of respect, that basic acknowledgement that you know, you're, you're dealing with a peer. Yeah, well, I mean, we can, we can see that it, as the case in one of the groups that you and I, Sam, are both members of on Facebook, one of the groups centered around developmental disability where more than anything it's not developmentally disabled adults themselves it's the parents of developmentally disabled people even those who are now adults and I think that's maybe most of the population of that group more than the parents of developmentally disabled people who are currently children anyway we can see that there's that level of still considering them children not just their children because that's that's normal you know no matter how old your kids are you're going to consider them your kids but considering them 
to still be children and 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 having wanting the services to mirror those provided for children when the disabled adults need different things. And also there was a post a while ago, and these sorts of things come up often, where someone was talking about how their son was seeing another person going out on a date with a girl. And this person automatically said, well, how can I explain to my son that this can't possibly be in his future? This is something he can't do. He's different. And hang on, you're assuming that there are things your son can't do because you're assuming that he is in the state of a child, that he is not an adult. And that's something we commonly see in these groups. We see these people not realizing that their children actually have grown up into adults and need different services and still calling them, talking about them as though they are still children. It, it, is, it is frustrating. Yes, frustrating is the word. As, as a parent, I don't want my adult children to be treated as if they are toddlers or still elementary students. I want them to be treated like the adults that they are. And exactly. one, of the, one of the issues that comes up when people persist in treating disabled adults as if they are children, one of the things that happens is that as this person grows from childhood into adulthood, there is no teaching and learning happening for them about how to be an adult. This is something that we typically do with our children, our neurotypical children. You know, the conversation is, oh, this kid's getting older. I need to back off, or at least I hope the conversation is, oh, this kid's getting older. I need to back <laughs> off, and let them start experimenting with making decisions and be there for them when things maybe don't work out like they planned but also be there for them when things do work out like they plan. That's, I would hope that's the conversation that we're having about our children as they go through the diff different developmental stages and enter into adulthood. There seems to be oftentimes a lack of understanding that people with disabilities go through those same stages of development. When we're talking about developmental disability, Okay, they're going through at their own pace, they've got their own timeline going, and they're going to hit milestones, some milestones they will hit earlier, later, some milestones they won't hit at all, but that doesn't mean that they stand still. They're still growing, they're still learning, they're still developing, and if you have someone who enters into adulthood and they've never been taught how to be an adult, they've never been allowed to make decisions for themselves, that person is has an unnecessary handicap that has nothing to do with their disability and everything to do with the way that people interact with them. Yep. And we can't, we can't really throw that kind of stumbling block in front of people with disabilities. For those of us with with physical disabilities, you know, we may have we, we we may have come up, you know, recognizing that we may recognize that yeah, I'm an adult, I'm fully an adult, and I need to adult. Yeah. But the people that we're interacting with, you know, they see the physical disability first, and any consideration that oh, this person is also an adult and should be treated as such kind of goes out the window. Yep. So how, how do we address that? I have one. Well, mm -hmm. Go ahead, Scott. Because if, if, if we're saying that we're, uh, yes, I, I do agree, Sam, that we need to let these uh, children as they become adults to then try things, but then sometimes maybe they can't because they don't understand reality. I'm not saying, I'm just saying mm -hmm. some might not understand boundaries of reality. Mm -hmm. We don't want them to be on the road and start cooking and not realize that the stove is just for that and not put something on the stove, et cetera. Yeah. yeah. Well, yes, and but there are ways of ways of getting around that. There yeah. are ways yeah. of, of being in the middle. For example, my father used to work with, with a young man. He would, he would take him places during his day to the gym, to lunch, et cetera. But this guy lived with someone whose parents had hired as a roommate 
who also did a little bit of supervisory and caring work. However, that's a way to do this without having it be still under the parent and still, oh, this person is always going to be going to need care. So they're always going to be taken care of by their parent and they're always going to be more like a child. There's, there's ways around that understanding of, of, for example, like you said, the stove without ending up putting yeah. these, these, these people in this situation. And Scott and Liza, to both of your points, we don't, you won't know what areas an adult will need support in unless they're given the opportunity to try. Yeah, exactly. So, so for, you know, for an adult who's never been given the opportunity to try, you don't know how to, where they need support and where they're fully mm -hmm. capable of doing things. So the, the, individual, the individual who may not have the right sense of concern about an open flame, well, the only way you're going to know that is if you teach them how to cook and realize, oh, they're a little bit, they're not quite as careful with the flame as we would like. So this is an area where they need support versus just cooking all their meals for them all the time and never giving them the opportunity. Exactly. Now I'm in this to, weird to position. That. Exactly. Now I'm in this weird position where I deal with disabilities both that are invisible most of the time, i.e., being autistic, and also physical disabilities, which can both be invisible depending on the day if I'm walking with a mobility aid or without one, or very visible if it's a day when I'm using my wheelchair and it's I'm sure anyone else listening to this who has varying levels of mobility knows that it's it's very surprising how differently you get treated depending on the day. Again, like you said, you get treated as less capable. And when I go into a drive interview, for example, with a wheelchair, using my wheelchair, if I do, after I've gotten my bachelor's in education and possibly even my master's, there is likely going to be this thing. How could you possibly? No, you can't possibly have gotten that degree. You, you're not. No, we're not hiring you. So there's this, again, this assumption of less capable. And this infantilization affects every area of a disabled person's life. Romance, jobs, friendships, religion, if you're, if, if you are in, in some level in a faith community, et cetera. It's massive the way in which this societal expectation of disabled people affects our lives. Yeah, and I, I'm glad that you bring that up because that's where I was going next with the conversation is this aspect of infantilization that keeps disabled people, disabled adults from experiencing adult things like friendships, romantic relationships, going out on dates, having a drink with a friend, all those sorts of things. There, there, there seems to be this belief that disabled people are so sweet and pure and they will never do mm -hmm. any of the things that other adults do and would never be interested in the things that other adults do. That... Exactly. I've heard, stories, I've heard stories of bartenders who will not serve a visibly disabled person even if they're carded and are over, over 21. For my, for my part, as a parent of now adult children, adult children with disabilities, it's, it's hard for me to gauge what sort of adult experiences they might be interested in. So I, you know, I'm kind of at this stage where I just throw everything at them to see what sticks. Because I want them to know that, yeah, you're an adult now, you got an adult. And okay, if there's something that you struggle with, sure, I will support you in adulting. But as much as I can, I, I will try not to adult for mm -hmm. you, which seems perfectly reasonable for me to, to, to do. And, you know, I, I don't know how to, how to get them those experiences with relationships. We'll figure that out eventually. Or, you know, I'm, I, I'm not sure about what their level of interest is, but I, as a parent, I have to assume that there might be some level of interest that I need to accommodate. Yeah, and, and, and 
a lot of infantilization is based on other people's assumptions about disabled mm -hmm. people. And really, the main assumption that should be driving us is that disabled people are, in fact, competent mm -hmm. with the appropriate supports. And we aren't no. going to know their level of competence unless we let them experience full range of being a human being. Yeah. Now, do you see this level of infantilization? Because we've talked about this change with your two sons, because the elder is, I would say, the way in which autism manifests for him is more invisible sometimes. Whereas the second youngest, the way in which it manifests for him tends to be more visible. So do you see levels of infantilization being different between the two of them, regardless of age, because I know they're pretty close? Well, I have, we've been fortunate in that, again, uh, a lot of the people that they interact with and that we interact with, they're taking our cues from us on how to interact with our children mm. and we are interacting with our children you know as is appropriate for whatever de developmental stage they're going through at the moment and now that they're adults we work hard to treat them as adults having said that yes there there is a, a different reaction to lib limitedly verbal kiddo from verbal kiddo but kiddo who's not interested in speaking and I call all of my kids kiddos. I call other people's kids kiddos. Yes, you do. Uh, and we, I've had the conversation with, with my adult children. Mom, I'm not a baby anymore. Well, okay, I know you're not a baby anymore, but like you're still my baby. I, I know you're growing up, and I'm working through the, I'm working through my emotions about that. But you know, you're still my, you're still my kid. Yep. And I'm figuring out how to parent an adult person as you were figuring out to, how to be an adult person. That's, yep. that's, that's where we're at right now with, with the adult kiddos anyway. See, there I did it that again. Really, <laughs> that really is a perfect way uh, to describe that, that aspect of eldest child. I mean, you, you said verbal, but not interested in talking. Yes. Uh, as someone who works with them directly, yes. So, Jeremy, I want to, Jeremy and Scott, you've both been kind of quiet, so I want to pull you back into the conversation, especially around um, the aspect of infantilization that denies disabled people the opportunity to have adult experiences and express adult thoughts and behaviors. Jeremy, I'll start with you. One of the complicating factors that you have here with, particularly with people who are either nonverbal or whose emotional range or ability or willingness to express things about what's going on inside uh, is, is more limited or at least less clear, is, is it, when it comes to romantic stuff is the issue of consent and how that's determined. I think there are all sorts of ambiguities and difficulties in, in that question without bringing disability into it. When you bring disability into it, it gets even worse. That's one of the things that people are concerned about and the reason why a large number of people and many laws draw a line somewhere that doesn't fit all that well with what you've been kind of presenting here. So I, I don't know how that law is going to be interpreted legally in, in courts and things like that. But um, when you throw in certain kinds of disabilities, you you have an automatic crime going on. Mm -hmm. So I don't I don't I mean that's that's the real tricky question. How if you want to try to advocate for banding someone's options, how are you going to deal with the legal question? Of, of the fact that anyone who they're involved in a relationship with might then be accused of criminal activity. Mm. And there are certainly plenty, plenty of cases where someone has taken advantage of someone when it can't really be shown that they have consented very clearly. So that, that's, that's one of the big concerns that, that's sort of an obstacle. I mean, 
there's a push. I see the reason to push in the direction you're pushing. And I see people are going to push back because of that. And And it's not that there isn't anything to what they're saying. And this does apply to other areas as well. We always think like, of consent as like drinking, as, as, <laughs> drinking, signing a contract, even uh, for, right, yeah, even for, even for something, even for something like employment or signing a lease, or people will assume that because this person is is intellectually diminished, supposedly, that any contract they enter into is illegal or void. <laughs> And that's but, simply not the, yeah. that shouldn't be the case. Yeah. On the other hand, how are you going to protect someone from being taken advantage of? Mm. Exactly. There so, should be precautions we've, in place, but we've we've yeah. seen that happen. <laughs> so it, it's 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 uh, even by siblings, <laughs> right? Uh, si- yeah. I mean, si- siblings are sibling relationships. Big brother has money. <laughs> big brother has siblings money. Siblings are another story. And he, and he and he caves every time we ask him for something, right? So but there, but it can it can happen with external parties, and I mean we all know how conniving and scheming and 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 awful marketers can be, uh, even when they're marketing oh, yeah. something good. It's manipulative, right? So when you're when you're dealing with someone who has less of a of a guard against things like that, that's that's the difficulty here. And in a way, it's kind of like the same phenomenon as having the the one the, the, the person who enjoys cooking but has a danger in dealing with fire, right? Uh, it, it's a similar problem to that. You've got something in moving you in one direction because you want to be more inclusive of letting them set the course of their life and decide things for themselves and 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 so on. But at the, on the other hand, there's dangers, and yeah. it's very easy mm-hmm. for for those dangers to get out of control. In comparison with other people who might be more easily able to guard against it, and and the same thing happens with disabilities that are not present from birth, or, 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 or just in terms of how development goes, but ones that set in later in life, a lot of scammers take advantage of people with dementia, and get them to to give away all of their money and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So I mean, it's 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 a real problem <laughs> that this happens. I was I was. I was going after apartments and I honestly, the number of scams on there is <laughs> a lot. And yeah, I, I, I even fell for, I even fell for one, but I think about what would have happened if, if it happened to, let's say my great aunt, my like great aunt who didn't exactly have the mental capacity to, to not go after this and who was very, very trusting. I was I, I knew about most of them and didn't go after things that were obviously scams, but there were people that wouldn't and keep pe- and then people take advantage of them because they know that these people wouldn't be able to tell the difference necessarily, or at least they think they wouldn't be. So I, I wanna I wanna get into you you've mentioned several things here and the, the both of you, and one of them is the, the legalized infantilization of people with disabilities in an effort to protect them from being taken advantage of. Now, clearly this, this, this is a blunt object that, a blunt object applied to a situation that needs a finely honed and sharpened scalpel. So how, what, mm-hmm. it, you're, you're right to, to, to see that there are these two concerns allowing people to engage in adult behavior and have a, adult experiences but at the same time, protecting them from predators who want to take advantage of them. And when I say predators, that includes all sorts of things. People who want their money, people who want their benefits, people who want to make use of their bodies without their consent. There, there's a wide range of people who deliberately prey on people with disabilities because they see them as easy targets. But at the same time, the law that is designed to protect, mm-hmm. that's supposed to protect them, often doesn't protect them and often acts as a barrier to people with disabilities engaging in their adult responsibilities. That's a delicate balance, and there needs to be people with disabilities in the conversation, driving the conversation, and in decision making positions so that they can make decisions, we can make decisions that better benefit people with disabilities. 
it's like you said, Scott and Liza, representation is important. And Scott, mm -hmm. I know that you um, had a comment that you wanted to share, so please go ahead. Okay, <laughs> thank you. I would say a, a practical solution, I don't know how that's done, and we're talking about these fine lines is somehow writing into the law, because if, if you're, if the disabled are entering into contracts, how do, how do we, if I was a business person and someone that was disabled entered into a contract and then something happened down the road, how do I protect myself as a business person? And I understand both of you, all of you wanting, all of us wanting the disabled to have that opportunity. Mm -hmm. So how do we kind of, I mean, that's just something for our listeners to understand and think of. We may be able to come up with a potential solution, but it's just a consideration in this yeah. discussion. Yes, and I just want to put in, Sam, when you were talking about the, the predation happening in many different ways, when we talk about using disabled people's bodies, it might, the first thing that we think of might be intimacy, sexual, anything of that sort, mm -hmm. but that's not really the entire scope of it. It's everything from that to using disabled people for profit while, put, while paying them a subliving wage, which we subminimum wage, which we talked about yeah. on the show before. There is yeah. the issue of because infantilization, people will not trust disabled people when they say what happened to them as well. So that puts us in these situations where we are even more vulnerable in the outside world because people will not believe us. And there's also the issue of not making space for disabled people to speak up for themselves, not giving them the opportunity to speak up for themselves, not giving them the opportunity to fully participate in the decision making processes that will affect their lives. Oh, we, we see it all the time where, you know, some big agency comes up with this big idea that's supposed to benefit people with disabilities. And you know, it, the news trickle downs to families and individuals and we're like, yeah, not, that's not as great an idea as you think. Yeah, it's, that's not what we actually need. That's mm -hmm. not gonna help us. Yeah, uh, you were gonna say, Scott? Yeah, it just popped in my mind when we're talking about, and we can talk about the education, especially as these adults, uh, they're adulting, they're on these adult training wheels. They're that's bad analogy, but I guess they're practicing, like when kids practice to ride a bike, you're practicing mm -hmm. how to be this above 18-year-old or whatever you want to level someone as an adult. And I'm thinking of education. I'm thinking about having them at the early age to make some kind of decisions with the parents and with the uh, agency, the teachers, et cetera, at the appropriate oh, level. Yeah. At a, mm -hmm. a five-year-old isn't going to be able to fully, but if they can just understand at that level that they want to have a certain amount of playtime or they want, and then as a teenager, they want to have space for romance. Then as an adult, they want to have the training, et cetera. Well, exactly. Yeah. I mean, we, we are starting with consulting and I'm going to be in, one of the areas I'm going to be in is IEP editing and one of the things I really want to do, because it's not done in the schools, most of it at least, it rarely is, is actually including the child, regardless of what age they are, what developmental stage they are, anything of the sort, in the planning of their IEP. Because while the parent does know things, the parent, yeah, sure, they know what the kid needs. No one can tell you or show you what the kid needs more than the kid themselves, or the adult themselves in this case. Mm -hmm. but when we're talking about education, the best way to set these then kids up for adulting in the world, one of them, yeah. and change the view around them is to have them involved in their own planning. That's why I am hoping to include the kids themselves in these meetings. What are you having trouble with? Okay. Why exactly do you think this is or what's going on in the classroom? Okay, when have you been able to do that better or, 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 or concentrate on it more? What helped you in the past? And if you can get to that from the kid's perspective, then you can put that in the plans that their teachers are working with. 
and you can also allow that kid to have at least some level of agency that will grow and grow and grow and continue into their adulthood. And including the kids in these meetings also changes the way society looks at them and allows the society, society to see, okay, these kids are having a lot more agency than we might think they are supposed to have. Why is that? Why are they doing so well when we're giving them so much more agency? Maybe it's mm. because they're more capable than we think they are. That is, that's, that's exactly what I'm talking about when I say that we need to work on creating spaces and opportunities to include people with disabilities in the, the decision-making process about their lives. Yes, absolutely include the kids in the meetings that are discussing what kinds of educational resources that they're getting. And have that, make sure that you present information in a way that the child can understand because that's exactly what we need their teachers to do. Those are the kinds of educational supports that they're gonna need. They're gonna need information presented to them in a way that they can understand. And in the decision-making process, they need information yep. presented to them that they can understand. If throughout a disabled person's life, they're going to need information presented to them in a way that they understand. And we cannot assume that, well, they understand as a child would. No. No. And, <laughs> and if these kids end up going to college, for example, it's a massive difference for disabled kids in college versus in high school. College, you have to do, do most of the advocating for yourself. Or if you work with an organization, the disability services person is more than likely going to talk to the person who is with you rather than yourself, rather than you to make decisions. But if we have this experience, when these people who are now adults were children, they will go into this more likely being able to advocate for themselves and do other adult things more easily because they were gradually given agency throughout their life rather than seen as this person is always gonna be in this stage of a child or they're going to be diminished otherwise. So it's, they don't have agency, etc. What are some tips for people who are becoming aware of this issue of infantilization of people with disabilities? What are, what are some tips that we can give them on how to not do that? <laughs> on how to treat uh, disabled adults like adults and how to help disabled children and teenagers go through the transition into adulthood. Go, Scott and then Liza. Yeah, one thing when I was reading, I won't give the person's name, but there was a, an article in Psychology Today, there was an article about a family where their kids were, were going into a, a band or and they just, and the parents really enjoyed it, but then from the past, experiences they were relating to them as kids and then as we were talking about into the, the adulthood even though some of that behaviors may be from the kid but you just have to treat them as experience it as an adult and you respect etc and, and just enjoy the process so i just, I just oh sorry go ahead and finish scout no i just thought that was interesting because obviously you're always going to go back in your memory as parents or caregivers or educators and see that individual as that kid. But then they're also experiencing the idea of adulthood mm. and how, how do you really, we don't always know what's in their minds because each one of us thinks differently I, at different levels, well, within the adult levels, but. And Liza, you were gonna say? One of the big, yeah, yes. One of the biggest things I have to say is don't go into any meeting, interaction, et cetera, first time with an assumption about, uh, about what you're going to encounter, who you're going to encounter. With a disabled or able person alike, your assumption is just going to come back to hit you. And it's not going to be helpful at all. And in fact, it'll stop you from potentially getting to know this person as they are. Your assumption will become essentially a self-fulfilling prophecy. Oh, this person isn't, isn't that level, doesn't have that level of capability. They're not capable. 
Well, yeah, they're going to appear incapable because you are assuming that they aren't capable and talking to them as though they aren't. And if you go in without these assumptions, then you'll actually be able to have a relationship with them based on what they show you rather than what you assume about them. And that's rather abstract, but that's really the big thing. And there are ways to do that. You can go in and actually ask whether whatever method they use to communicate, ask open-ended, more open-ended questions rather than assuming that they are one way or another. Go in and actually talk to them and ask about their life experiences rather than assuming that they don't have any or they don't have any that are worthwhile. They have them just the same as you. And also don't really consider supposed developmental age. I mean, there is something to be said for that, but it a lot of the time does more harm than good because it ends up having you treat them and assume they are more like the developmental age they are rather than their actual age. Jeremy, any suggestions or tips that you would have for people to avoid infantilizing people with disabilities? I think one quick way to, to I guess, one quick term <laughs> that you can think of is just presume competence. You may discover that someone doesn't have the ability to do something or, or doesn't have the ability to make it known that they have the ability to do it. But if you presume competence, you're likely to see a lot of things you don't expect. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to presume it in ways that open up the door too much to danger with a son who has done dangerous things. There are things I will not presume, (laughs) but I certainly would want to make sure that he has the ability to do things or has the room to do things if he chooses to do them. There might be things I need to put in place when I'm keeping an eye on him just to make sure he's going to be safe. But if I can find ways to allow him options when he's choosing various activities or when things are being done for him, and if I can find a way to involve him in that or or, or see if he, he's interested in doing it a different way or something like that, that's always helpful. It's always good. And it gives him more agency, more personal involvement, more expectation mm-hmm. that he's involved in doing something. Difference is that you, difference is that you know him. You, you have, he, is, he has shown you where he may and may not be competent. Whereas someone going in has to presume competence and should because they don't know this person. And they don't know, if you, if you don't presume competence, you won't be able to see where these people are actually competent, whereas if you do presume competence, the only thing that can be done is to show you that they maybe need a little help with this. But there's one kind of presumption of competence that I would caution against, mm-hmm. and that is when it would lead you to judge behavior because you're presuming competence that might not be there. So we mm-hmm. do see that all the time. We see that all the time. We've had people who assume he has ill intent when it's almost certainly just some kind of sensory thing. Yeah, well, that once again leads into the one of the most basic tenets of social psychology, which is the fundamental attribution error, which, yes, I've brought it up before and I will continue to bring it up. The fundamental attribution error is where for yourself, you would attribute a particular behavior to be situational i.e. I am doing this because this thing happened to me. I am being mean to this person. I, I am being sarcastic with them I'm, because they have wronged me or I am not mowing the lawn because I am in a lot of pain. Whereas you tend to attribute others' behaviors and actions towards dispositional factors, i.e. I am being sarcastic or mean to this person because I'm just me, or I am not mowing the lawn because I'm lazy. Whereas they they are not mowing the lawn because they're lazy. They are being sarcastic or mean to this person because they are just mean. Whereas for me, I'm not mowing the lawn because I'm in pain. And that applies to what we're talking about here with the assumption that your son's behaviors are, or, or any 
person's behaviors, I don't know whether you were specifically referring to your son here, are due to dispositional factors. The assumption that it's just that's the way he is rather than a situational factor like what's going on sensorially for the person. Hmm. Again, fundamental attribution error. There's a reason it has the word fundamental within it. So I think that the takeaway is to one, presume competence, and two, let the, let the interactions teach you about the person you're interacting with. And honestly, that is a great way to get to know people, whether they're disabled or not. First, presume competence, then proceed in the conversation, being willing to learn from the person you're interacting with about who that person is without assuming any moral failings in the individual. Mm-hmm. So I, we are about out of time and I wanna thank you all for being part of this conversation today and discussing what infantilization of people with disabilities is and how it impacts the lives of people with disabilities and really thinking about, well, how can we back off from that and treat disabled adults like adults? I'm the Idea Dynamo Samantha Pierce. You are listening to Life Fantastic, the podcast where people with disabilities talk about all things disability here on Straight Independent Radio. We're sponsored by neurodiversityconsulting.org and sanctia.org. Check us out on the web for all the great things we do with people with disabilities, including our lecture series on race and disability, where we discuss how those two identities intersect and influence the lives of people with disabilities who are also from uh, racial and ethnic minority groups. Check, out, check us out online for more details about that lecture series. Thank you everyone for joining us today and we'll have another great topic for you next time.